This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Have you ever noticed how celebrities have brighter, whiter looking eyes? Their makeup artists have a little secret in their kit. Lumify Redness Reliever Eye Drops. You guys, I use these every single day. Lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute. It literally happens right before your eyes to help them look brighter, whiter, and more awake for up to eight hours. No wonder it is so loved by influencers, celebrities, and makeup artists and has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. Lumify is also the number one eye doctor recommended redness reliever eye drop and it's FDA approved. No bleach, no dyes. Plus it's made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb. So whether you're on set, on a date, or running on just a few hours of sleep, you can have eyes that look brighter and whiter with Lumify eye drops. And when you try it, you'll see that it is what your eyes have been looking for. So check out lumifyeyes.com to learn more. Hi, everybody. Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show, you guys. I'm so glad that you're here. We're in the middle of a series called For the Love of Facing Your Fears. Felt like the right time to do that. Felt like a conversation that a lot of us are having already in the community. So I thought, let's coalesce around it. Like, let's let's bring this to the show and onboard some really profound voices into this idea of facing our fears. We all have things that scare us. It's not because we're doing life wrong. Like I mentioned this to my guest today, but fear in, in and of itself is a normal emotion. We can craft no such life to have no fear. Rather this idea that we're all gonna experience fear and it's not because we're doing something wrong or we're managing something poorly. It's just because that's the human experience. So then what do we do with it? That's really what this series is about. I have had recent experience with fear. Again, this is something I talk about in this particular episode, but I didn't grow up as a real scared person. Like fear was not a part of my worldview really, or even just my personality. And so fear has been something new to me in the last three and a half years. And I have deeply had to handle this conversation. Like this is so under the skin for me. It's just right there. This was a huge portion of my life was, oh my God, I'm scared now. 
I'm scared of things I've never been scared of. I'm scared of things I didn't know to be scared of. I don't know what to do with fear because I have no practice here. So this is a conversation that's near and dear to me. We've got a guest today who will be walking us through some strategies on facing our fears genuinely in a healthy way by showing us what habits mentally strong people employ in their lives and how we can literally train not just our brains, but our bodies toward happiness and identify where we are being guided by fear and what to do about it. So today we have Amy Morin. She is a renowned psychotherapist. She's a best-selling author. She's devoted her whole career to the exploration of what it means to be mentally strong. She actually had a talk called The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, and it's recorded as one of the most impactful TEDx videos to date. So her work focuses on the importance of emotional intelligence, resilience, and also understanding how certain habits bad habits like indulging in self-pity or surrendering our power, two things we'll talk about today, can and will undermine our mental strength. So a bit about Amy, she thought she was going to teach other people about mental strength based on what she learned in college. But about two years into her career as a psychotherapist, she experienced the very early and unexpected loss of her mother And then just three years later, the loss of her husband and found herself in a place where she realized not only would she need, but she actually had some mental strength just to live, just to get on with her life. So she kind of set out on this personal journey to learn as much as she could about grief and mental health and mental strength and what ultimately gave way to living her life in the fullest way, which you're going to hear about today, which is her story is super, super fascinating. You guys buckle up because Amy doesn't pull any punches here. This is a direct, straight communication, almost a bit of tough love, but in a way that I really respond to. She tells us the truth here. And I found myself just fascinated with her research and her experience. With no further ado, please enjoy this incredible, useful discussion with the delightful Amy Morin. Amy, welcome to the For the Love podcast. I'm really just so glad you said yes to this. Thank you for giving us your time. You're probably hottest commodity like all of ours. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Huge fan of your work and just thrilled to be able to talk to you in person. Yeah, thank you. So much same. Your journey is so fascinating and interesting, like professionally and also personally, and how those two things have dovetailed. I've given my listeners a little bit of your background. I sort of high-leveled your incredible credentials to them and a little bit of your background. But I wonder if before we drill in a little bit here to this conversation, if you could share a little bit about your earlier experiences with loss And specifically, how some of that led you down a path to now be in this really interesting driver's seat of a conversation around what makes us mentally strong. 
And then like, did that change your trajectory early on? I mean, you were kind of fresh into your career, right? I'm leading the witness too much. You just (laughs) take that question and you run with it. Sure. So I started my career. I was a therapist in rural Maine and thought I was going to teach everybody like all the things I'd learned in college. But my mom passed away suddenly and I was about a year into my career and it was like my first huge loss. And I just couldn't imagine now my life moving forward without my mom in it. There were so many milestones I had thought my mom would be there for. And that's It's really when I just became super invested in mental strength for my own purpose, too. And it wasn't just about like in the therapy office back in the day. It was mostly you were either in order to qualify for therapy to get your insurance to pay for it. You had to have a diagnosable mental illness. But we didn't like grief wasn't covered at the time and things like that. And I was like, wow, here I am. I'm a therapist trying to teach other people. I'm struggling with this in my personal life. And now I'm really going to put to test a lot of the things I know about mental health and working through problems and how do you move forward after you go through something like this. And I was glad that I did because it was the three-year anniversary, three years to the day that my mom died, that my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And I woke up and I'm now a 26-year-old widow. I don't have my mom. And I thought, like, what are the chances I would lose the two people closest to me? And it was a time in my life where a lot of my friends were just starting to get married and talking about kids and their lives were just starting. And I felt like my life, the dreams I had for my life, I felt like were over. But one of the things I didn't want to do was move. My husband had been the primary breadwinner and without his income, I thought now I have to move. And the thought of packing up my house and moving was also overwhelming. One of the things I did was I started writing articles as kind of a side hustle because I thought I can at least do that after work and on the weekends. And then maybe I can keep my house for the time being because I didn't want to move until I was ready. I felt like I had lost so much. The thought of packing up and moving all of his stuff plus my stuff was just too much. And so a few years down the road, I wrote an article that was called 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do based on my own experiences. But in the moment that I wrote the article was actually another really dark time in my life. By then I was remarried and life was starting to look better. I had moved to a new house on my own and finally felt good. But then my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I just remember thinking like, this isn't fair. My entire last decade, I just grieved and I didn't want to lose somebody else. And I wrote this letter to myself based on what I knew. And it was because I thought, you know, Amy, if you just don't do these things today, you'll get through today. And that was all I needed in the moment was just some words from myself about how do I get through today. And I put it on the internet hoping a few people would read it, but 50 million people read it. And that's why 10 years later, I still get to talk about mental strength. I've written six books now and my life is completely different. I now live on a sailboat in the Florida Keys. I no longer live in Maine and I get to do really cool stuff that I I would have never even known were possible. So while I wish I hadn't had to go through all of those things, going through it certainly led me on a completely different path, both personally and professionally. I have a million questions, not the least of which is what is it like to live on a sailboat? <laughs> it's, I mean, who um, lives on a sailboat? Like I know, what, right? It's, it's What a story. It's interesting. I've gotten used to it. Like there's moments where I kind of forget and then I'll go away for for a week and I'll come back and I'm like climbing onto my sailboat and I'll have that moment where I'm thinking, what am I doing? This is weird. Oh wow, I live on a boat. (laughs) Right, right. But then when I'm like here for a while, I kind of forget it. But it's more like a floating apartment, I guess, in a lot of ways. So I need high speed internet and so I can do stuff like this. So we're tied to a dock a lot of times anyway. 
Okay. One more question about this, because I have much other things I want to talk to you about. I'm just fascinated by this choice. Like, what was it that you had in you that said, I want to change my life in such a major way that I want to go live on a sailboat in a different state? That's a pretty big move. That's a pretty bold move. So my my second husband had always dreamed of living on a sailboat. When he was four, his bedroom was decorated in a sailboat theme. And I didn't really know that, even though I lived in Maine, I didn't really know that like people lived on boats permanently. But we had thought like, oh, that'd be neat to do someday. And I remember the day that we were talking about that. And I remember the words coming out of my mouth like, oh, we should do that someday. But I had a job as a therapist and I worked 40 hours a week. It really wasn't an option. But I said to myself, you know, if we put something off until someday, given what I know, there's a chance it's never going to happen. Why don't we just do it? And so we we had a Fiat and we packed up our dog and our cat in our Fiat and moved from Maine to Florida. He came down earlier, bought a boat. I was like, oh, whatever you pick out will be fine and just moved on to it. Not knowing if we'd be here for like six months or longer, but I think we're going on seven years now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. I love that you just built a different container for your life. Right. People can do it. Like I, I just yeah. love that story. I know that's a, a sub story of your story, but you're right. The someday myth has kept many a dream from never, ever materializing for sure. Thanks for talking about that. It's really fun to think about you living on a sailboat. <laughs> I know you've been talking about this for a decade. And so I appreciate you being willing to go back into the well here because the whole idea of 13 things that mentally strong people don't do is fascinating. And I wonder how many I have and don't have. And so I wonder if you could just maybe talk about the top couple that feel maybe the most impactful to you or were in your life or in your story or something that you can draw on personally that you went, this one was, this one's a biggie. Well, you know, when I, when I wrote the list, I didn't, it was a letter to myself and there was no context. When I finally published the list online, there was no context to it. I didn't explain why I had written it. But then when I explained to people, like, actually, this is a letter to myself, kind of the order of the list does kind of make sense. So number one on the list is don't feel sorry for yourself. I was in that space where I thought, how could this be? I lost my mother, my husband, and I'm going to lose my father-in-law. And he had sort of become this surrogate parent to me in a short period of time. And I thought, what are the chances? I have all of these other people in my life who my friends haven't lost a single person in the last few years. And here I am going to lose another person. This isn't fair. And I knew like deep down, it doesn't matter. Like life isn't fair and feeling sorry for myself wasn't going to help. Like, okay, Amy, you do have some resources or just like when my husband passed away and I thought, okay, not only is it fair that I'm now it's unfair that I'm a 26 year old widow. It's unfair that I can't pay my bills again. Like if I had just felt sorry for myself, I would have ended up not being able to, to keep my house. But that was when I was like, put your fear into action, get out there and do something. And I remember thinking, but I can't be a therapist a hundred hours a week (laughs) and be effective at it. And it's not even an option. The office closes at five. I thought, what else am I going to do? And I wasn't in a mental space where I could do a lot of different jobs, but I could write articles. So I was able to turn it around and say, at least become a freelance writer. If you can write in the evening and on the weekend and you feel like it, that's something I could do. I could still do that, even though I felt like I was in a rough spot. So when I wrote the list, again, I was tempted to be 
get caught up in that, but this isn't fair. And I didn't sign up for this and I don't want this to happen again. And, but I knew that would just keep me stuck. So that's why that was number one on the list was don't feel sorry for yourself. I knew that the grief and like being sad was all part of the healing process, but feeling sorry for yourself is different. That's when you start thinking my problems are bigger than everybody else's and they're like helpless and hopeless. No, there was still something I could do if I just woke up in the morning and said, what am I going to do today? And also, what am I not going to do? Then I was taking some kind of action. That's good distinction. Because of course, it makes sense to grieve and be sad and have very human feelings around loss. But you're right. That's not the same thing as feeling sorry for yourself. That puts us in a different zip code that's hard to pull out of. What else did you have? What are some of the other things on the list? So another one is don't shy away from change which my whole world had changed, even though I didn't want it to. But for a long time, there were so many things that I just clung to because I thought I just, I can't handle anything else being different. And as a therapist, it's something we do too. We'll often we'll be in a meeting where we're talking about some of our clients who are resistant to change. Yeah, I kid you not, during that same meeting when the IT department says, hey, we're going to get some new software, all of us therapists are like, you know, the one we have now works fine. Why do we need anything new? We don't want to change the system. And it's so easy, I think, to get caught up into that idea of like, you know, I don't I don't want my life to be different because I don't want to make it any worse. And if it's going to be different, it's going to be hard to adapt to. And so for me, I knew like, oh, okay, I could adapt. I just had to adapt to some awful things that that happened, but I could adapt to smaller things too, but I had to be open to that experience. Mm. We are famously resistant to change. That is such a human condition. And yet when I think about it, probably my greatest seasons or moments of growth and even excitement are just on the other side of change. Whether I chose it or it was chosen for me. Really either way, honestly, I had changes thrust upon me in my life in recent years that I didn't want and I didn't choose. And yet here we were. And so now it's interesting to look at some levers that ended up pulling in my life that I am profoundly better for. Profoundly. And things are different and improved and so it's so strange that we have to steer into the very curve we're afraid of. It really is because so often we're just like, no, I don't want to, you know, it's too much work to do things differently. It's too much totally. effort. It feels scary. So if it feels scary, I don't uh, want to do it. Yes, 100%. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O-allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. 
your TED talk, The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, it's one of the most viewed TEDx talks of all times, which is incredible. So there's a lot of good ones to pick from. And yet even then you had to overcome a fear of public speaking, which by the way, talk about common fear. I think I read somewhere, I read somewhere that of the like most trackable fears in the American public that public speaking is number one and number two is death. So like right. people would literally rather die. They would yes. rather die <laughs> than speak on a stage. Right. So scary. So I think I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about your approach to fear specifically, because there's different buckets here in, in your story, certainly, but really in ours, there's loss, there's grief, there's suffering, but fear, it's kind of its own, it's kind of its own animal. And so I'd love to hear your advice about, about facing fear, about how to approach it, how to think about it, how to respond to it. What have you learned in your life that you have been able to process fear in a way that feels healthy and good? You know, a funny thing happens when, when your biggest fears become true. I would say as a kid, I had horrible separation anxiety from my mother. And my biggest mm. fear would have been that something would happen to my mom. And then it happened. And after my mom died, I remember thinking like, gosh, you know, what if something ever happened to my husband? I couldn't stand it. And then guess what? I lost my husband. So it's like my two biggest fears in life happened. And before that happened to me, I lived my life trying to play it safe. If something felt scary, I didn't do it. And I was the really shy kid. And so my my sister and my best friend spoke for me so I didn't have to speak. If I wanted to ask a question, I would just whisper to my friends and they would do oh, it gosh. For me. And wow. so the thought of like ever speaking, I mean, it was like a joke at school. I went to a really small school, but everybody knew like if Amy has a question for the teacher, her friend will ask for her. Oh my gosh. But it was at my husband's funeral that I gave the eulogy. And for the first time in my life, I didn't care if I stumbled over my words, if I looked stupid, if I said something out of line, because I thought I had stories that I wanted the audience to hear about my husband that they didn't know. And so for the first time ever, it wasn't about me. It was about like delivering a message that I thought was important. And I think that shift in my head, two things happened. The first one was I realized when scary things happen, I'm more adaptable than I would have ever given myself credit for. I can handle it. But the other thing was also like, it's not always about me. Just because something feels scary doesn't mean it's dangerous, like social Social activity is not that scary. Speaking up and embarrassing yourself is not the end of the world. And that even though, you know, our, our fear meters in life are often super faulty. We think if something feels scary, we shouldn't do it. And then we don't. And I lived a lot of my life like that. Like if it feels scary, just don't do it. Well, that's the perfect recipe for depression, say, because we live a really safe life and you don't go out there and and figure out how exciting things can be and how much you're capable of doing, you'll live a really small life. And it really wasn't until these things happened to me that suddenly I thought, so what? If I get up there and I give a TED Talk and three people watch it, like it's not the end of the world. You might as well do it. And even if it feels scary, do it anyway. And so I think a lot of the things in life, like, oh, move to a sailboat. If it doesn't work out, move back. It's not a big deal. But before that in my life, I would have thought, oh my goodness, what about this? And what about that? And I would have come up with a million reasons why I shouldn't do it as opposed to, 
a million reasons why I should. And yes, maybe it won't work out, but it also might be the adventure of a lifetime. And that attitude has helped me take way more risks and face a lot more fears. I love to hear you talk about that. I was in therapy pretty in, intensely the last couple of years. And I am not a person who's naturally afraid. I'm just, I never have been. I didn't grow up in a house that made me feel afraid. I went through adulthood feeling kind of shiny about the world and not afraid of it in ways that other people were. And so getting divorced after two and a half decades, being on my own for the first time, I was all of a sudden afraid of everything. I did not know how to handle it. Like I didn't have muscle memory for it. I really hadn't had a lot of practice. And so I just remember thinking, well, I guess I'm going to die of this fear because who can live with this? Like who can just walk around feeling like this all the time? Do people feel like this all the time? It was so debilitating. How do you coach your clients and your community through the paralysis of fear? Because it does keep a lot of us from moving forward, sometimes forever. Sometimes playing the script through until the end. Okay, what if you did that? You applied for that job and and you got it and you hated it. Well, then what would you do? You'd quit, you'd find another one or you'd tolerate it for a while, whatever it is. And sometimes that helps bring down the fear a little bit. Another thing is to just take it one small step at a time when you can. Because sometimes what people will do is when they're afraid of something, somebody who's afraid of public speaking signs up to give a speech in front of 100 people. And it doesn't go well. They're so paralyzed by the fear. They get up there and it doesn't go well. And they think, I am never going to give a speech ever again in my life. Maybe a good starting point would have been to start in front of the mirror at home. And then you do the speech in front of your partner or three people. And you work your way up so that you don't terrify yourself or traumatize yourself into saying, I can never do that again. And sometimes our fear is speaking to us because it's saying, hey, you need some more skills. You need some more practice because fear will often talk us into, if I use the example of public speaking again, our fear is like, oh, I don't want to practice because I'll sound too rehearsed. But really, the real reason we don't want to practice, it's because it's anxiety provoking because we don't want to think about the fact that we're going on stage. So then you don't practice at all. And then it doesn't go well. And you think, ah, clearly I'm a bad public speaker. But really, it's all because of fear that causes some strange decision making. So it's about knowing I can face my fears. I can do it one small step at a time. And don't let your fear take over. When our when our fear runs really high, our intelligence runs really low. And you want to balance that out to take notice of like, how scared do I feel right now? Because fear will cause you to overestimate the likelihood that everything's going to go wrong. And it will cause you to underestimate your own capabilities. So you got to raise your logic and balance out that fear a little bit. So sometimes that's like thinking, all right, realistically, what are the chances this is going to go poorly? If you have somebody you can run it past, a trusted friend, a really good family who will tell you the truth and you say, hey, I'm thinking about investing in this, buying this, making this move. What do you think? And then listen to them. You don't have to necessarily take their advice, but listen, if they say, you know, I'm really concerned that you're not looking at this, or I'm concerned that if you take that risk, it may not work out and here's why. But just so you're like, all right, because they don't have the emotion attached to it that you do. So they can think about it much more rationally. And you can ask yourself too, if my friend were struggling with this, what advice would I give them? And that takes the emotion out of it for us. And we can often make a much more rational decision when you think, oh, no, I'd tell my friend, go ahead and do that. Take the leap. Like, oh, okay, well, then I'm going to tell myself that same advice. Those are great strategies. I also find 
for me, this may be specific to me, but I don't think it is because my community confirms this experience a lot in their lives as well. But a lot of my fear (laughs) tends to spike in the middle of the night or in a moment where I'm feeling vulnerable. I haven't slept or I'm just lower capacity for whatever reason. I'm, I'm tender in some way or, and that is like fear's best invitation. That's when fear wants to come to me and just give me a whole story about my life. Getting through that moment is hard sometimes. It is. And I think all of us have probably laid awake at night worrying about something that we feel terrified about. And then the next day, you're like, it's not actually a big deal. Totally. But at so three in the morning, it felt like it was like a life or death circumstance and you were about to be homeless and all of these things that run through your head. So I think in those moments when you recognize perhaps my fear is a little irrational, it still feels bad. And physiologically, you know, your heart might be beating fast. Your stomach feels sick. You feel all of those things. So a couple of things that can help. One is to practice mindfulness in that moment. You just ask like... What are five things I can see, four things I can hear, three things I could touch, two things I smell, one thing I taste, something along those lines, but just to be in the moment. And your mind will keep going back to that thing that you're worried about, but you just keep bringing it back just to hopefully calm your nervous system just a little bit. And there's tons of breathing exercises. My favorite one, because most people come into my therapy office and they're like, somebody taught me this breathing exercise, but it's like five breaths in and four out and hold it for four. And they're like, but I don't remember it. So the simplest one is what we call smell the pizza, where you literally just pretend like you're smelling a piece of pizza. So you breathe in slowly through your nose and you just hold it for like the count of four. And then you pretend you're going to blow on the pizza because it's hot. So you blow out through your mouth like you're cooling the pizza off and you just blow out slowly through your lips. Do that like three times. It's weird how it it works. Calms your brain and your body just enough sometimes that it takes the edge off. So you can think a little more clearly. So those are some things that help in like three in the morning kind of stuff when you're in bed. If it's the middle of the day and you're sitting at home and you're like ruminating on something, you do what we call change the channel, which is get up and go do something. Don't let yourself keep spinning over and over and over again. You might be like, you know, I'm going to spend five minutes cleaning the kitchen. I'm going to call a friend and I'm not going to talk about this thing. I'm going to talk about something funny or I'm going to ask them what's going on in their life and I'm going to listen. Because if you just get your brain off of it for a little bit, It calms you down enough that when you go back to thinking about it, you might be a little bit more rational and you can think about it a little more clearly. And one more thing would be if it's during the day to write it down. Sometimes when you just get it out of your head and on a piece of paper, it gets a little more organized. And so that instead of thinking about it over and over again in a a pattern that's not helpful, it can just help your brain be like, okay, here's the three things we're worried about. Here are the two things we can do about it. And here's the one action step I'm going to take right now just makes it all crystal clear. Whereas in your brain, it's like this jumbled mess and it's swirling all around and it's hard to get rid of. But when you put it on paper, sometimes that helps too. Those are so good. And what I love about those suggestions is that those are accessible to every human person. As you well know, and I do too, there's so much to be gained and and glean from therapy, or that is not accessible to everybody. It just isn't. Not everybody can afford it. As mentioned, our mental health care is still unsubsidized, as if it's not a part of our actual health care. But that's another conversation. But everybody can breathe. Everybody can change a channel. Everybody can walk outside and walk around the block. Everybody can grab a pen 
and write on a piece of paper. I'm obsessed. My friend Chelsea was wearing the softest cashmere sweater in that perfect weight for spring. She told me it was under $50, made by a fantastic company named Quince. And I could shop for my laptop which is my dream. So I immediately ordered the cashmere tee. Now I want it in every color. Quince offers staple pieces like Chelsea's Mongolian cashmere sweater, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, classic like 14 karat gold jewelry. You can upgrade your wardrobe with luxury essentials, but unbeatable prices. You guys, seriously, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And I know what you're thinking, but Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible practices premium fabrics, which I love. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash hatmaker for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash hatmaker to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash hatmaker. You guys, how important is sleep temperature? It's everything to me. And this is where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Its mission is to elevate the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. It's designed for one or two sleepers. So if your partner likes to sleep at a different temperature or you only need it for one side of the bed, it still works. I just put this on top of my existing mattress and voila. So whether you're dealing with night sweats or simply seeking a better night's rest, Chili Pad is here to transform your existing mattress into a sanctuary of cool, relief, and comfort. Visit www.sleep.me slash FTL to get your Chili Pad and save up to $315 with code FTL. This offer is exclusively available for the love listeners. Only for a limited time. So order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with your sleep trial. So visit www.sleep, that's S-L-E-E-P, dot M-E slash F-T-L. Because every woman deserves to wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer the day ahead. Did you know more than 75% of Americans experience foot pain in their lifetime, but only 10% seek out a solution for that pain? Your feet don't have to hurt. So let me tell you about Superfeet. Superfeet has a wide range of insoles for every activity, every shoe, and every foot. From cushioned and flexible to firm and supportive, you can dial in your fit by taking their quick quiz online. Answer just a few short questions and Superfeet will recommend the best insole choice for you. Foot biomechanics may be complex, but solving foot pain should be simple. So when you add the signature orthotic shape of Superfeet insoles to your shoes, you give your feet comfort and support where they need it most, helping redistribute forces to reduce stress and strain on your entire body, not just your feet. When your feet feel good, so do you. Your foot health is an important part of your overall well-being. Visit superfeet.com and enter the promo code FTL at checkout for 15% off your first order plus free shipping. I remember early on in my kind of recovery process, I, for the first time in my whole life, because as mentioned, I'm not a naturally fearful person. That has not been my story. And then all of a sudden to have that much fear baked into my bones is like it overloaded my system. And I had a handful of panic attacks, which I know about that. I mean, I'm a person who works in wellness. I lead a huge community of women. It's not like I don't have no access 
to what panic is and even how to get through it. I've had a lot of hosted a lot of conversations around. And yet when it happens to your own self, holy moly. And so I remember between all my people who helped me intervene, like my, my GP and my therapist and every kind of thing, them saying about the breathing. I'm like, come on, man. Like I had to pull my car over to the side of the road. Like I, I need some serious help. And they're like, the breathing. I'm like, it's so weird how we have some of what we need baked into the sauce to calm our own nervous system. Like I just tell people don't knock it until you have breathed your way through a panic attack. One of my tricks kind of goes back to your mindfulness, which was, I would just do a little pinch like, okay, I can, there, I feel, I feel my skin here. I am in my body. Like it was the dumbest thing in the world. When my therapist suggested, I'm like, give me some real help. Like I don't tell me to pinch my wrist. And yet these were some of the tools that really worked. And I hope people listening don't like roll their eyes at the simplicity of it because it really will pull you through. And I agree. I think when I was at my lowest points and I would get, you know, a lot of the same tips and advice and I was thinking the exact, and even though I'm a therapist and I'm thinking the exact same things, like, you know, I want you to give me something that's going to take the, not just a little bit of the edge off. Like I need you to really help me at three in the morning. What am I going to do? But, but that's it. That sometimes those are the best tools we have. And then when we start using them, like it empowers us to know like, okay, I do have some skills and resources. I do have some strategies. I have a toolbox that I can reach in and and figure out what am I going to do for myself right now? You know, it's true. And, and it's not that those things solve the problem, but what it does is it pulls us out of that fight or flight space. It pulls us out of the panic. It pulls us out of the spiral enough to be a little bit more thoughtful and reasonable about what's actually on the table. And that's the best we can hope for. I always want you and your compatriots in your job to fix the problem. Like, I'm like, that's why we're paying you fix the problem. Like, how can I not, but that's not the deal. Like problems are problems. It's more like the management of them. I'd love to hear you talk about a couple of the maybe more surprising or a couple of the 13 things that people wouldn't necessarily imagine create mental strength or the lack of, of course. Would you talk about some that are maybe a little less obvious? Sure. One of them would be don't give away your power. And this one, there was a lot of confusion when people first hear it, like, wait, what do you mean? But it really boils down to those times when we say something like my boss makes me work late. Well, did your boss really force you to work late? Like, it's a choice. Yes, you might get fired if you didn't do it, but it's still a choice. Or when you say, my sister drives me crazy. Like, does she actually drive you crazy? No, maybe you don't enjoy her behavior, but that's different. So often we we put it on somebody else that they ruined my day. They wasted my time. They had this huge effect on me. The truth is, like, nobody can make you feel bad about yourself. Nobody can make you feel anything we're in control of our time, how we spend it, who we spend it with. So taking back your power is all about just stepping back and realizing like, okay, these are my choices. This is my day, my life. How do I want to spend it? Do I need to set a boundary? Do I need to at least change my language so that I'm not saying other people are forcing me to do something as opposed to just recognizing, I really don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
big difference between I had to do this in our minds. That makes a huge difference because it takes away that victim mentality that we all sometimes mm-hmm. want to so use good. sometimes. Yeah. Because it's tempting. I mean, it's easier to blame other people for my problems than to... <laughs> And then I'm like, oh, and I can't fix it. So I don't have to do anything about it. But that's what keeps us stuck in a place of misery. Oh, I feel like you've been spying on me. That's all the stuff that I learned in my work around codependency. That it is so tidy to just have an outside source to blame. It's so much easier. And then requires nothing or at least less of me because it wasn't my fault. That isn't how life works. Our problems are our responsibility, no matter, no matter what we think, no matter, uh, it's the worst, the absolute worst. Can you give us one more? Yeah, I would say that mentally strong people don't feel the world owes them anything. And this one, like people will say it to me, like, that's great. You got to write a book because you went through a lot of hard things. But like, I wasn't owed a book deal just because I went through hard things. Like life does not work like that. There's nothing that's going to be fair and equal. But people so often think like, if I work really hard, then I deserve success. It doesn't happen. There are a lot of people out there working really, really hard who don't make a lot of money. I mean, if it really worked that way, like I guarantee there's a mom in a foreign country who's carrying water for her family who's outworked me every day of my life. And I don't think she makes as much money. But I hear a lot of that where people are like, well, I did all of this work, so I deserve good things to happen. Maybe you are an amazing person and maybe you have worked really hard, but the world doesn't owe you anything. And I've gotten some pushback from that. People who claim, you know, when you're a nice person, you deserve great things to happen back to you. But as far as I know, there's nobody out there that's making everything completely fair and equal to us all the time, no matter how nice of a person you are or no matter how hard you've worked. I like this tough love approach. I do because I think these are the narratives. I don't know what your observation is here. I don't feel like these are the narratives my parents' generation got. They had a different idea of the world. Their work ethic was different. What they felt like they were owed was different. Like my age, I'm 49. We started getting this message that if you put these ingredients into the soup pot, this is what you will get. It's how the world works. The next generation has really heard it. They have really heard, like, you should expect your dream job at age 23. You shouldn't have to do work you don't want to do. Like, I don't know that this is getting better. This messaging is my point. And so we need your idea more than ever. This idea of, I will, I am not a victim. I am not deserving of all the world's gold stars. This would change our lives. Like, it's not mean what you're saying. Do people feel like you're being mean when you say that? Is that the pushback? Yeah, sometimes I'll get those comments from people who are like, if I went to college and I worked really hard, then I deserve that six-figure job right away. And I I think to your point too, it does stem from in the 80s, we had like the self-esteem crisis. So they thought they were doing us all a huge favor at school by trying to build us up and tell us we were the best and the most amazing. And then we came into the everybody gets a trophy idea. And you combine that with the world too, where now almost anything happens in an instant now that we have the internet. So all of those ingredients, I think, do make us think like, well, I did this, this, and this. I checked off all the boxes, so I deserve it right now. But that's not really how self-change works, or that's not really how so many things in life work. They take time. They do. My youngest is about to turn 18 in a couple of weeks, just drifting around, can't figure out what to do next. But yeah, she stood in my bedroom last night 
in this house last night and said, you know, I am good at numbers and I'm interested in like money, but you know, I, maybe I'll just, I don't really want to work at a bank. I just, maybe I'll just own a bank. I'm like, good idea. Let's just <laughs> own a bank. <laughs> what in the world? So yeah, I, I love this approach and I think it, to your point, and I'd like to kind of start to land it a little bit, but, and I probably should have asked you this at the very beginning, but can you talk about what you see as the advantages to mental strength? Like, what does it mean? Why should we care? Why does anybody really want to be mentally strong? Why, why is this work worth our effort and our attention? And what do you see both in your personal life and in your practice of the results really? I don't know if that's too American of a word, but what happens on the other side of mental strength in a life? Yeah. You know, I would say it's a lot like building physical strength, right? There are tons of advantages to it. It's something you can do every day. You can work on. And then when you start to build strength, you notice that life gets easier, no matter what kind of curveballs get sent your way. And sometimes people will say, well, isn't it the same as resilience? No, resilience is about bouncing back from hardship. But like, I think it would be awful if we spent our whole lives building mental strength just because we're waiting for the next shoe to drop. Like, that is not how I want to live my life is just waiting for awful things to happen. I wanted to enjoy the good times, too. And I thought, you know, there are plenty of great, amazing things in life and I want to get the most out of it. And so mental strength is really about that, about being able to push yourself, but knowing you don't have to push yourself to, to the extremes necessarily, but about knowing what your values are, having the courage to live according to those values and living kind of the kind of life that you were meant to live, whether that be that you really enjoy family and you stay home, whether it be that you test yourself with all sorts of challenges, whether you want to go live on a sailboat in the Florida Keys. But it's really, I think, about living life to the to the fullest and in knowing that you can enjoy the good times and but that you're also prepared for the bad times. But I think it makes everything better, everything from your work life to your relationships to just your mood overall, day-to-day -day stuff. I face challenges differently than I used to. I experience my emotions are different, like I'm no longer af afraid of feeling afraid or I'm no longer struggling with so many things that I used to struggle with. So I think it just makes everyday life so much better. That's lovely. Is there any one habit that can still jump on your shoulders ever? That you, you go, this is the one I still have to kind of knock down like a whack-a-ball a little bit. Yeah, you know, if I'm honest, like I've been talking about the list for 10 years, I still do all the things on the list sometimes. So it's definitely not a, I'm never going to do these things. But, you know, I would say like giving away my power, I would still have moments where I'm like, oh, I have to do this today. That's and I'm right. like, they're making me. <laughs> right. Like, Amy, you don't have to do it. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. So I still have moments and I think old habits die hard. And for a, a huge period of my life, I had the kind of language that implied things, you know, life was happening to me, not that I was living my life. So it still takes practice and I'll still catch myself and have to reframe those, those thoughts and comments that I have. Before I ask you this last question, we've barely scratched the surface. There's so much under each and every one of these. There's plenty we didn't even mention. And so I would love if you would tell my listeners where they can find you, where they can follow you, where they can find your work and your books and just all of it. Sure. So my website's the best place, which is Amy Morin. LCSW is in licensedclinicalsocialworker.com. 
And in terms of social media, the one I'm most active on, it would be Instagram, where you can find me at Amy Morin Author. Perfect. And listeners, we'll round up all of it for you. We'll get every every Amy link that exists and we will put it in your hands to follow and to learn because this your work is so important and relevant to every human person. So there is nobody outside the purview of this human life or these practices that really do matter. And they they really can change a life. They can. Last question, I ask everybody this, every series, every guest, and I would love for you to feel free to answer this however you want. So you can be like as earnest as baby Jesus, or you can be like absurd, like somebody who lives on a sailboat in the Florida Keys, for example, might be. I borrowed this question from Barbara Brown Taylor. She's a priest that I love. What is saving your life right now? Mm, I would say friends and family. If I've learned anything, it's that the people in my life are by far the most important thing of getting through the good times, but also the bad times. So I would say the I'm fortunate to have amazing friends, family, and an amazing husband. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for your incredible work and your messaging and your willingness to share it with my community for sure. And for me, like I heard some things that you said today that I immediately put into my heart, like, I need this today. So I'm so delighted to have met you and I'm just cheering for you. Thank you for, for all, all that you do in the world. It definitely matters. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Jen. All right, you guys, fantastic conversation. There is more that we didn't even touch on. So I know you are going to want to follow Amy and kind of see the full scope of of habits that she has discussed today. If you go over to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I will have everything about this episode, the episode itself, the show notes, and then we'll have all the links to Amy's work and her website and her socials and everything you need to follow her if you are interested in hearing more, because there is more. I'm sorry we cannot always (laughs) pull everything into one podcast, but she has a lot to offer us, and I feel really drawn to her message and challenged by it today. This series is all like this. I find it so useful and knowing that fear is a ubiquitous part of the human experience. And so this place to gather around strategies and habits and sort of mental approaches to what we do with fear when it comes, because it will come is to me just so incredibly useful. So I'm cheering you on whatever it is you're facing in your life right now and excited to hear about it. So thanks for responding in the comments. More to come in this series, you guys. We are so hopeful that this particular series serves you well and means as much to you as it means to us. All right, you guys. On behalf of me and the whole podcast crew, we sure love you. See you next week. The For the Love podcast with Jen Hatmaker is a presentation of Odyssey and produced by Four Eyes Media with Laura Neitzling, producer, Abby Stevens, production director, Gregory DeMario, production assistant, and Lauren Winfield, researcher. 
Odyssey's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Leah Reese-Dennis. Special thanks to the team at Odyssey, Maura Curran, Melissa Wester, Matt Casey, Kate Hutchinson, Eric Donnelly, Aaron Constantino, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schupf. Listen and follow For the Love, an Odyssey podcast produced by Four Eyes Media on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a production of Four Eyes Media.